0: More laws. We're going to see a few more laws uh, this evening in these two chapters, chapter 25 and 26. We start off with two laws actually to protect criminals and animals. We're going to see that God was a very interested in uh, not only properly his justice, but also There are some people who can get carried away and go beyond what is necessary in regards to punishment. And God has set it up so there is a balance and protection even for criminals and for animals. We see here, if there is a dispute between men and they come to court that the judges may judge them and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be. If the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence according to his guilt, with a certain number of blows, forty blows he may give him, and no more, lest he should exceed this and be him with many blows above these, and your brother be humiliated in your sight." So we see that this is a simple responsibility of the government and the courts that God is setting up here for these judges. Even as Paul says in Romans 13.4, Paul describes in Romans 13.4 the role of government and the importance of the government because he set that organization up and we studied that Previously, For he is God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath upon, on him who practices evil. So God has set it up that the government will bring come for those who clearly uh, are going to be punished for their crime. But there was boundaries. He says if a wicked man deserves to be beaten, apparently God considers that some criminals are wicked. Can you believe that? God thinks criminals can be, are wicked. And so when we look at the scripture, why do I say that? Of course, that seems to be obvious. Not true. Look at today's day. How many times people who are criminals and who are doing wicked things, and they're not punished. They're let go because of their position and prominence and money and whatever reason. They're not punished For the wickedness that they're doing. And God says they deserve to be beaten. And we seem to have a justice system today that considers it more passionate and kind than God himself. If you really think about that. Yet we can't say that we live in a more just And safe society today, based on that mindset, that as a government we're going to be compassionate, we're going to be, you know, just we're going to be kind, and we're going to let them off, and we're not going to punish them with due process of justice. And so we don't have a safer and better, just and safe society because of the way government is today. Back then, there was a clear guidance from God how and to the judges how people are going to be dealt with with their criminal and evil activity. But there was a boundary. Forty blows, he says here in the scripture, may be given to him and no more. It could be up to 40, but in the time we studied it in previous books of the 39, we believe that Jesus was beaten with the 39, not 40. Why? Because it could go overboard beyond what the law says in regards to the 40 here. Though sometimes a beating was a appropriate punishment, And God also agrees that the idea that there is such a thing as an excessive punishment. And so God told the judges here that it could only go so far and uh, and it had to be in the judge's presence. It couldn't sit there and say, you're going to be punished, now I'm going to go play golf. You know what I'm saying? Or I'm going to go back out there and and have tea and you guys take care of the punishment. No, the judges who are actually doing the uh, sentencing Actually, had to witness the actual punishment, so he was accountable to what his decisions were. I thought that was beautiful when you really think about that. So he could make sure that the punishment was not excessive in this case. Now, in Second Corinthians eleven twenty-four, Paul lists the, among them this, this, these. Part of the credentials, his, this, uh, 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 his credentials, as Paul, what we see here, says, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. The 40 stripes minus one means that Paul was beaten by the Jewish authorities 39 times, 39 blows. On five different occasions, Paul had to do that as an apostle. Paul did not receive 40 blows, as according to this, the law here, they he had to receive the 39, which was the common practice that the Jews would do to minister for punishment. Now, he didn't deserve it. He shouldn't have gotten it. But that didn't stop the religious Jews and them to do it anyway, just like they did to Jesus. In verse 4, we see a next law. It says, and You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, God wanted us to be humane and, and be right with animals for certain. And as a ox would go around and around the circle to grind and move that stone to grind uh, the grain... God says to to Moses, to the people, that they needed to simply make sure they humanely treat the working animals and that while he was going there, you should not keep the animal from being able to eat as he was working to to, to the work on the grain. Now, it says there in 1 Corinthians 9.9 and 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul applies the same principle in this teaching to the minister's right to be supported by the people the ministers to. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 9, 9 and 10, leads us to believe that this is the real point that God was actually making in this verse because in that passage, Paul says, is it the oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? So he was sitting there saying, you know, here's the ox working hard and, and to provide for you to make sure the grain is taken care of for you to be able to do it. Same with the ministers. Ministers are pouring out and feeding you and stuff. Then you should be providing through the tithes to provide for the pastor or, or the teacher who is there feeding you. Why would you muzzle them and not provide for them doing the work? Here in verses 5 through 10 we see the laws dealing with some family matters in, in regards, this, especially when it came to those family members who survived Uh, when one of the brothers passed away. And it says right here, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man, shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. They had to stay within the family unit. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. That was responsibility. So I ponder on that. I'm sure you've pondered on this. And you're just like, oh, you're getting married? Who is she? Why would your brother be concerned who you're going to get married to? Back in those days, that was really important, was it not? Because you're about to marry this girl. And if he died and he had a high likelihood of dying, you were now going to now fill in as a husband if you did not have children. So you know. There's no question in your mind that when you get to about get married, that brother would say, now make sure you make sure that in this first year you have a, a son. Make sure you have a child. Because then he wouldn't be responsible to have to, to lie with his brother's wife to carry on the Family name, you know how that plays out. I'm sure in your mind, because that is exactly what the responsibility was. And it shall be that the firstborn son which he bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother. So the credit still goes to the dead brother, even though it's his his seed that made the child, and that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. For if the man does not want to take his brother's wife. Oh, there's a possibility that the brother may not want to lie with the the brother's wife. Yes, that's why there's a law that in um, in place because there's a very high likely possibility he wouldn't want to do that. So it says right here, if this if, if uh, the man does not want to take his brother's wife. Then let his brother's wife go to the gate of the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall come to him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove that guy's sandal, from his foot. Now can you imagine? You I don't want to lie with you. No, I'm going to take responsibilities. She gets to hustle herself right over there and take that sandal off that man. The elders are watching. And what does she do? She takes that sandal from his foot and spit in his face and answered and says and say, "You shall so shall it be done to the man." who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. That was that was not a good thing. If someone came over and took your sandal off, that was very humiliating in the society of, of that day. But there was responsibility. Why? Because God didn't want any name to be dropped from the lineage and the importance of in the nation of Israel and to carry that on. So, they had to choose wisely. There were brides, and the brothers had to work to make sure this is going to work out well. Verse 11 and 12, we see now wives are to have boundaries, and they're, to not, they're forbid to interfere when the husband gets in a fight. Look what happens here. If two men fight together, and the wife comes to the rescue, <laughs> and the wives do come to rescue many times, but comes, the wife... One draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of the one attacking him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the gentiles, genitals. Then you shall cut off her hand her eye shall not, and your eye shall not pity her. Now, you know, you're, you're coming in for the rescue. Now, ladies... I I hope the first thing you're not thinking of is grabbing the guy's genitals to get him to release from your husband. But I guess in an emotional moment, and if there's one place to get a man to stop, that's one way of doing it. I wouldn't do that. Why? Because there's a punishment. Because that must be something that was in the culture at the time. That was one way of of stopping something. because God actually had to put a law in place to stop women from doing that. And in this case, uh, she could lose her hand. And no one should have any pity. Oh, I'm so sorry you lost your hand. No, God says, don't think about it. Don't don't do it. End the end of thing. So the law is in place that would keep the women, even coming for the rescue of her husband who was getting beat up, uh, can't do it. Now we see in verses 13 through 16, we're going to see laws around justice here, especially back to business, back to making decisions of weighing things out and getting, you know, bartering and moving things here. Look at what happens here in verse 13 through 16. It says, you shall not have in your bag differing weights, a heavy and a light. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure. Measure, that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all who do such things all who behave unrighteously are an abomination to the Lord your God so if you sat there and said oh here comes my neighbor i really like him i'm going to give him the ideal weight exactly what the weight is is going to be perfect but if you sit there and you have something a little heavier cuz you want to get more money or a little lighter where you don't have to pay as much and the measuring stick is not quite the what it is supposed to be and cuz you're cheating them out that's unrighteous it's an abomination it's going against the character that is truth that is you know righteousness right it has to be right and good and trustworthy all the nature of God is around how you measure and treat Uh, especially when it comes to money and uh, how you deal with that. Now in verses 17 through 19, we see God commands of Israel to, to deal with someone in the past, Amalek. Someone in the past of Israel's past. Look what happens here. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt? How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Wow. God tells Moses to tell the people, when you go in and you got everything taken care of, you've conquered all your enemies and everything's in place and you are now resting, you possess the land. Do not forget there's one more you're going to wipe out for the from this earth and that is Amal the Amalekites, Amalek. Now think about this. Who were the Amalekites? They were the nomadic desert tribe Ranging from Sinai northwood to the Upper Arabia. We see that in 1 Samuel 15:7 and 1 Samuel 27, 8, that reference. But what's interesting is that group is from the genealogy traced from Amalek to uh, Eliphaz to the grandson of Esau, Genesis 36:12. So you can see Esau. And how that all plays down to Amalek and who came against God's people while they were coming across the desert. They needed, needed food and, and needed whatever to, to provide. No, no. Instead, these people attacked the uh, Israelites. The Amalekites attacked Israelites, which was recorded in Exodus, if you remember, 17. Joshua led the armies, if you remember. Now he's going to be in, be in charge of the, of, the, of the nation of Israel going into the process. But Joshua led the, the armies of Israel to victory over the Amalekites. If you remember, Moses was praying, if you remember, and Aaron and Hur assisted him in raising up his arms and making the Spirit of God to move into power and to overcome the Amalekites. But because of God's strong command to battle against Amalekite, uh, we see until they were completely conquered, many people, as we study them and have gone through studies around this, especially when we were in Exodus, I talked about that it was a picture of the flesh, that which consistently battles against the spirit and must Be struggled against until completely conquered. And we saw that in that reference I made in Galatians 5. Verse 17. So let me tell you, you're going through life, you haven't gone to find the rest yet, you're going through the promise, going to the promised land, you're going through, and you're going to get attacked spiritually, it can be very draining. But God says you cannot give up, you have to get whatever it is that you battle with in the flesh until it's completely out. You've got to keep fighting that battle, that spiritual battle, uh, to get rid of that uh, giants or that Amalekites in your life. Now when it says here, when the Lord your God has given you rest, now that means that Israel was to make this war against the Amalekites at a later time, and that some 400 years later, God directed Saul, if you remember, to go in and make war against the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15 and 1 Samuel 28. But when God at that later time, 400 years later, Saul, King Saul, was supposed to go in and wipe out the Amalekites completely. Everything, anything, all completely. But he failed to completely destroy them. And that was a primary act of disobedience to what God's law said then and said when he said to go into the, in first Samuel, to go against them. And it cost Saul the throne because of his disobedience. God was serious back in Deuteronomy when he wrote it 400 years earlier, and he was serious 400 years later when he was about to now go in and take care of this, these Amalekites, and he didn't do it. God never forgot that. Now in chapter 26, we brings us to dealing with first fruits and tithes. And it says here in, in 26 verses 1 through 4, it talks about bringing the first fruits to the priest, that we understand that that's what they were to do. And it shall be when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you possess it and dwell in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground, which you shall bring from your land that the Lord your God is giving you and put it in a basket, and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. You had to come to the tabernacle. You had to come, you had to come to the temple even later on, but the tabernacle. And you shall go to the one who is priest of those days, and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the country which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us, then the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. So you were to come with the first fruits. It was an offering, it was to come to give to God for his purpose and glory. And when they went into the promised land and they sat down and they came across the Jordan River and they went through and conquered all those obstacles the Jordan River, the swollen spring floods, the Canaanites and armies and all these things all of that you have to go through all of that don't forget once you're in the promised land and settled god still assured them that they were going to come into the land even though with all the challenges and all the oh, how we're going to survive how we're going to be able to do this how we're going to start from fresh and start new how it, all of those why why how how if if ifs that come in people's minds when god's moving you he still said in the word, I'm coming and I'm going to bring you into the land. You may not know how it's all going to happen, but I'm telling you, you're going into the promised land. But when that happens, some of the first of the, all the produce of the ground that was going to be produced from the land I'm going to give you, in Numbers 18, 12, speaks of the first fruits, and so we're not going to go into that in detail, it says that you're going to bring this special offering of first fruits from that first harvest that they gain from the promised land when they first settle in. So it's something very important. This very first time you're in the promised land, the first time you're cultivating the land and producing that first harvest, you're going to give to God those first fruits. Now he says here, it's set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And that's like even today with tithes, gifts, and offerings. You come, you're setting it to God. This is God's form of worship. It's a, and it was a form of worship there. The first-roots giving obviously honored the Lord. It wasn't to honor anybody else. It wasn't bringing the first-roots and say, Oh, this is an honor of Moses who couldn't make it in here. Or it wasn't in the honor of Joshua or anybody, of Caleb or anybody else. No, it was purely for the Lord when they come and give. Because it gave the Lord his portion off the top. He gets the first. He doesn't get the leftovers. If there's leftovers, he always gets first the first portion. So when Israel had taken possession of the promised land, they were to celebrate these two rituals these two things they would be done only once accompanying that offering of the first fruits and the tithes on that third year was something special that was supposed to be set apart and only done once and they were given in order to celebrate Israel's transition from the nomadic existence to a settled agricultural community made possible, how? By the Lord's blessings. So yes, they were going to always give the first fruits. We've gone through all of the different um, uh, um, celebrations that they had to do, but these were two additional special ones, and it was in honor of the fact that they now went from a nomadic transition life type tribe to now settled into the promised land. And that was to be a very special thing. The very first fruits and then tithes three years later. Verses 5-10 through we see the thanks and the praise and the giving of these first fruits because it should be. Whenever you bring your tithes, gifts, your offerings, your first fruits, it should not only be coming because you're giving it to the Lord and no one else, but you're also giving it and where did they give it? They gave it to the priest at the place where they gathered, and that, in this case, was the tabernacle. Just like we come here, we bring the tithes, gifts, and offerings. It's not; it's just to the the the, the pastor. And in fact, that it's to the church. It's to the place you come and you gather for God, for in God's name. Now, notice here: and you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, "My father was a Syrian about to perish, and he went down to Egypt and dwelt there." Few in number, and there he became a nation. Remember, talking about uh, the transition here and how they got into Egypt. And this is, and they were. My father was Assyrian. Notice here, great and mighty and populous, but the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, and laid hard bondage on us. Then they cried out to the Lord God of our fathers, and the Lord heard. Our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He has brought us to this place, the promised land, has given us this land. A land flowing with milk and honey. Oh, it was so good. It was so great. It was a beautiful place that God brought him. And now, behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which you, O Lord, have given me. Then you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. So again, you're giving always when you're giving, you're giving to the God, to God, and you're doing it in a form of worshiping God, because you're so Blessed by what God has provided for you. And so there's no wonder this confession that they're making here of thanks and remembering of their history of Israel and how the time of Jacob and his family were brought down into the land of Canaan and to the families going down into Egypt and then eventually deliverance from Egypt and, uh, and to then finally, ultimately what God wanted to do into the promised land. And they were, were citing this and remembering this and never forgetting what God has done and, and they're praising and thanking God for doing this and Israel spent more than some 400 years in Egypt why because God brought him there because it was God's eternal plan to protect his people there the whole miraculous story of how it even happened and how he orchestrated to be able to bring them down there To protect them in this land until they became this. They were just sojourners. You're going to Egypt because you're just sojourning. It's temporary. You're just passing through. It just happened to be 400 years of waiting to pass through. But that was all God's eternal plan. I think that's the same thing. When we went to New Jersey, I thought... I'm going to Egypt. I, I, it's just uh, How long am I going to be there? I never imagined we were going over to seven years in, in, in Egypt, in, in, in foreign lands. But God did that to provide and to, to, to work things through before we came to ah, Watertown, the promised land, of course. the North country, it's the promised land. I'm sure that all of you think of the same thing. But they were few in number when they first went there. But they became and grew a nation great and mighty and populous, if you remember uh, when you, we studied Exodus. And then it's they, God, by a mighty way, brought them out to this promised land, and this is the first fruits that they're celebrating. It's giving you know, thanks and praise to what God had done, and it's basically saying, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God, for giving us this beautiful land and all this produce, and we give the first fruits to you in celebration. Of all that you've provisioned for us. And verse 11, and you shall obviously obviously rejoice here. He says, you, so you shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given to you. And your house, you and the Levi and, in the, and the stranger who is among you. So when we receive from the Lord, we are to give back to him. And, and we should cause us to rejoice in the fact that we can give back to him. And it is proper response of, 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 of who he is our as our creator here and who has supplied us all the good things. And we should be constantly praising him and thanking him for all of his provisions. Small or large, we should still, he provides for us. Now we see in verse 12 through 15 a prayer uh, in regards to the giving of the tithe. It says, When you have finished laying aside all the tithe of your increase in the third year, The year of tithing and have given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless and the widow so that they may eat within your gates and be filled. Then you shall say to the Lord your God, I have removed the holy tithe from my house and also have given them to the Levite, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow, according to all your commandments, which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments. They didn't, he didn't, they didn't go against his commandments. They were actually fulfilling the commandments. Not, nor have I forgotten them. You can't say, I've forgotten them. No, I've actually did it. And I have not eaten any of it when, it, when in mourning, nor have I removed any of it for any unclean use, nor given any of it for the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God and have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation. Isn't that a wonderful thing? God, look down from your holy habitation up there from heaven and bless your people Israel in the land which you have given us just as you swore to your fathers a land flowing with milk and honey. So the tithe was required of Israel, every year. But every third year, we see here, the tithe was given not only to the Levites, which is what they were to do, to those who were serving in the tabernacle, to provide to spiritual uh, uh, guidance to the people, but for uh, for their support, but and that's again. That was all lined out in Numbers chapter eighteen. But it was also to share the with the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your gates and be filled. So God said, every third year, you make sure you're taking care of the strangers, take ca- care of the fatherless, take care of the widow. This is not about just you. And, it, and God says, not only you give to me on a yearly basis, and, uh, but you also make sure this is taking care of the people in your in your in your realm of influence and understanding of how you can help. And so he's saying, make sure you pray about it. Make sure you're constantly talking to me about giving to others. About giving to God and his work and what he's doing. He says always Praying, it said. Then you should, you shall say. That means you should be praying. What you're doing here, and do what God's called. And I so I kind of jotted down a few things about right giving is done according to God's word. That's what you always remember. How do I give, as a new believer? And you're just not even sure about tithes, gifts, and offering. What is that? How do I give? I know I'm supposed to give. I, I'm not sure how to give. Just always remember the right giving is done according to God's word. It says right here, according to all my commandments, which you have commanded me. That's why they're doing it. The second thing is right um, right giving is done within the context of the of the whole life of obedience why do you give because god says to give to him so you're being obedient so it's right giving is through obedience because it says in here in the scripture it says i have not transgressed your commandments nor have i forgotten them so i oh i forgot my tithe and you know, i forgot my tithe again and you know i don't feel like giving the tithe well god says you're going to work that out as you mature and grow as a Christian today. Is you're going to give because it's, it's what God's called us to do. Here, it's very clear why they needed to do it. Right giving is always done in context of life of obedience. We also see right giving is genuinely sets aside what is to be given unto the Lord. And I love how we read through this that he says, I didn't eat it. I didn't remove it. I didn't do anything else with it. I literally protected those first fruits to be able to give to you. So it's like in context today. You got paid. The first fruits is a first tithe. or Tithe means tenth, let's say. And we're going to give to the church. And I'm going to write that check or I'm going to set that money aside. And then all of a sudden, oh, I forgot to give it. Oh, I, I, didn't, I didn't feel like going to church this week. I didn't, didn't take it. I didn't send it. Well, I, I think it's okay. I'll just take some of that money back out of that envelope, or I'll, I'll just forget about it. And maybe next month I'll give it. You know, and you start using it because you feel like you you need more ice cream. It's it's ice cream time. It, you know, you, whatever reason, all of a sudden you and now it's time Sunday comes. You're like, I don't have any money. I, I, I forgot to save it. I didn't put it aside. I, I Lord. Uh, Next time, you'll understand, I know, right, right? You'll understand, I'll just do it next time. And then the next time says, I'll do it next time. And eventually you just, you always have a reason why you don't give to God. They, they, God had put a law in place that they were to make sure they followed through with God's commandment. We also see right giving is done not superstitiously, but given to be used practically now for the living you don't do it for any other reason like you practically giving to God to form of worship you do it consistent with joyful way of God leading in your heart to do that and you do it and you want it practically to be used for the glory of God and his kingdom to take care of people to take care of his people and to take care of what God is doing where you uh Come to meet with him. We also see that right giving is done with the expectation of blessing, too. Looking down from your holy habitation from heaven, you bless your people. You can expect that. When you give to God, you know you you don't do it because you're looking for the blessing. But you know that God is blessed for being obedient of just giving as he's leading your heart to give. Verse 16, we see that Moses gives an exhortation here to the people uh, about obedience. It says, this day the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and judgments. Therefore, you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. So clearly... We see here, even in Deuteronomy 4.1, we began this long section from four all the way to here, and we heard, now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and judgments. Okay, guys, listen to me, I'm gonna say it again. Okay, guys, here's a more laws, I'm telling you again what the God is telling me, I'm writing it down, I'm telling you, this is what God's expectations are of you, don't forget. So we see from all the way from Deuteronomy 4.1 to now, all of this reminder of, oh Israel, lest the statutes and judgments which I teach you to observe, you need to do, remember to do it, and I'm encouraging, exhorting you to do it. And sometimes we need to be instructed in that area. We need to be instructed regarding of God's word. Sometimes we need to be reminded regarding of God's word. But sometimes we need to be exhorted. Regarding God's word, we know what to do, but we need to be encouraged to actually do it. Don't be just hearers of the word; you can quote the word, but you got to do the word. And that's the exhortation. That's the a very clear encouragement to us, and we need to hear that. That's why we come and gather to hear the word of God taught. And lastly, here the last few verses here, verse seventeen, we see. Today, it's Israel's proclamation. We're going to proclaim something here. Look at this. Today, you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God. I love that. You're sitting here telling me He's your God. Here You're sitting here and I've been reminding you you need to keep your statutes and your judgments, God's judgments, and you need to do that what? We saw in verse 16, with all your heart and with all your soul, your whole being, your inner being, and your mind and soul and spirit, you want to follow God's words and do it. And so he's telling the nation of Israel, proclaiming that the Lord is your God, you're saying he's your God, and that you will walk in his ways And keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, that you will obey his voice. So can you picture Moses crying and just like, remember, guys, remember what God has done for us. And remember, you're standing here and proclaiming that you know God, that he's your your God, you follow God. Then if if that's what you're proclaiming, and you know it, then you need to walk it. You can't just talk it can't just hang around and be part of the, the, the tribe of Israel and just hang around and wait for someone to you know, take advantage of. No, no. He says you will walk in his ways. You will keep his statutes, you will, his commandments, his judgments, that you will obey his voice. And then we see in verse 18, 19, God's proclamation as well. He says, also today the Lord has proclaimed to you you proclaimed your, well, you're you proclaiming you know God. You're proclaiming that you want to walk in His ways. You proclaim you want to be obedient and to, to listen and obey, obey His voice. But look right here. Also, today the Lord has proclaimed to you to be His special people. Do you know that God loves you? And as a born-again believer, you're His special people. You're a child of God. That is God proclaiming that to you and me. That's what God was proclaiming to them. You will be my His special people, just as He promised you that you should keep all His commandments, and that He will set you high above all nations, which He has made, which He has made. In praise, in name, and in honor, that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God, just as He has spoken. There's a tremendous reward to be a special people of God. Tremendous reward. God promised that He, exalt, he would exalt and obedient Israel to set them high above all nations, which He has made in praise, in name, and in honor. You are His special people. We are a child of God. Great rewards for being in the family of God. We must be obedient children. A child that is completely, totally surrendered, completely sold out to be absolute in love with God. Why? Because He first loved us. He first loved us. Now we can just naturally respond and love back to our Savior. Amen?